I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to the award-winning Michael Arditi. He's an author of literary fiction uh, and they all explore faith, sometimes through history as well. He's been a theatre critic and a book reviewer for national newspapers and his new one is The Anointed. We talk about themes and inserting fiction into old stories that have been told many, many times and also what he thinks about overwriting and wasting words. I know that I've got several novels that are sort of ideas are half formed in my mind, um, which I would like to get done, but I don't feel anymore that my life would be wasted if they weren't done. So, um, yeah, whatever it takes um, is part of the process, and I think people should feel that. I don't think people should worry if they throw stuff away. Um, I mean, I know there are some writers who write a first draft of a book and then throw it away completely. Um, I mean, a complete first draft of a book and don't, but have, you know, have a form then in their mind and then start again, Um, which, you know, some people would think would be perhaps a very wasteful way of doing it. But everybody has his or her own way. And I think that there are no, no rules. It's a big beefy one this week with Michael Arditi in Writer's Routine. Yes. Hello. Welcome to the show. It's it's Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. This is where we take a look inside an author's day to very simply see how they get stuff done. As, as I mentioned, it's, it's a big, beefy, into-it chat this week, so I think we'll crack straight on. Michael Arditi is the prize-winning author of 11 books. He's written some short stories, too. He's been a theatre critic. He's written book reviews. His novel, Easter, won the first Waterstones Mardi Gras Award. Uh, he's also written The Celibate of Men and Angels, The Enemy, and many others. And they all really have the theme of religion running through them. We talk about why that is, why belief and, uh, well, non-belief is something that he likes to unpack. Now, his new story is The Anointed. It's a retelling of the biblical King David in ancient Israel. It's all written in poetic, historic language. And it's from the point of view of uh, three of his wives. We talk about how he expanded and interpreted a story that's been told many times over and made it worth telling again. And uh, I've mentioned it, I'll do it again. This is a comprehensive one. Michael gets into it. 
You can hear how he uh, works the day around being a morning person, uh, what thought he gives to originality, and also why he doesn't like being told what he can't write. Let's get into it with uh, Michael Arditi. As always, we start with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I'm actually now sitting in, in my sitting room, but I normally write in my bedroom. I, I've written in my bedroom all my career. Uh, I, I In bed, actually, I mean, rather than just in my bedroom. Um, and I... I know a lot of writers. I mean, I'm just about to, to, to read a novel that's coming out by Jonathan Franzen, and I know that he wrote, writes, or at least wrote, in a completely darkened room to have no stimuli of any sort, other obviously than internal ones. I, um, I'm not anything like as rigorous as that. But somehow in bed, I'm completely um, contained and yet not constrained. I, I, I find it... Uh, I've always found it a place to write. I mean, my great literary hero is Proust, who obviously, as we all know, wrote in bed. But um, ever since I, I have sort of been talking about that, I've discovered that huge numbers of other people, including unlikely people like Mark Twain, wrote in bed. Um, but it, it, I had, um, I suffered a, a spinal injury about 20 years ago. And suddenly, um, from people thinking I was terribly lazy to write in bed, and in fact, all I did was really lay there and suck chocolates. Um, people started to think that actually I was brave because this was the only way I could be comfortable. It is indeed my most comfortable position, but I actually have been doing that for a very long time. And you were asking what I could see. Well, I think like many writers, every spare nook and cranny of this flat is uh, you know, dominated by bookshelves. And I have bookshelves in my bedroom which include my own books because I prefer to have them not on public display. And, um, my bedroom is a very private place, and and and, and also and, and other other books. In fact, I'm I'm very very sort of controlled about these things, and I think it's novels from N to Z. So if you came here and you, you were writing in your novel, it began with S. You might feel quite aggrieved to see that I hadn't got any of your books in. Um, in my sitting room or my dining room, but in fact they've they've extended over into my my bedroom, uh, and otherwise they're just typical bedroom things, chests and and I have some rather beautiful miniature Victorian um, library shelves on which I have some ornaments, um, but they don't. And I have a couple of well, I have some pictures, but I have a couple that are particularly interesting for me at the moment because they're. Um, Georgian caricatures, one by Gilray and one by Cruikshank, of the sensational child actor Master Betty. Um, uh, don't, don't be deluded by the uh, female-sounding name. He, his uh, surname really was. Well, he was called William Henry West Betty, and he is the subject of my next novel, which um, will be published in um, uh, next January. Now, it's interesting that you say you've always uh, worked in bed like that. I've, I've spoken to many different authors, Michael, and I, I think you're the f only a handful exclusively right in bed. Uh, some like the distinction between work and rest, and they feel like if they're in bed, uh, it kind of blurs those lines. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about working somewhere and, and creating somewhere where you are relaxing and sleeping for many other parts of the day? 
well, yes, I don't sleep for much of the day, but um, I uh, I live alone. I, I don't have a partner, so my bed is my own, if you like. Um, I I have some rules, like I I never have my um, computer in my bedroom at night. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, I have an iPad, uh, which is by my bed, which I I mean, I don't ever write on. I mean, I I, I used to be a theatre reviewer, and I sometimes wrote theatre reviews on my iPad, but I don't ever write anything serious on the iPad. Um, and, and I, you know, do all the usual sort of uh, social media things of which I'm, I'm really not a, a major uh, player, um, and, and watch, you know, Netflix things on it. But um, as regards my computer and any writing I've done, I am always uh, make sure that they're put back in my study uh, before the night, night time. It's just a, so I suppose in a way that may be the equivalent of what you're asking. Um, I, I do, uh, I have a desk in, in my study uh, and I do sometimes do stuff there. Very, very rarely um, do I work in the afternoons. I, I, I get up early um, and my writing day is really six to six to six or seven till one to two. I mean, that's not always the case, obviously. And I break for breakfast and I break for various herbal teas during the morning. Um, but then the rest of the day is my own. Um, I, I've always, I'm a mornings person. And um, so I take my computer back into the study at well, effectively lunchtime, which is when I also, you know, shower and do all the rest of it. Um, and it stays there on the desk then. And, and sometimes I write little bits or I could, I suppose, um, make some corrections, but very rarely. I'm also not terribly comfortable sitting down like that, so that doesn't help. But just staying in your room for one second before we move on to into your day quite thoroughly, uh, aside from the books that you've got all around you and the, and the pictures that you've described, is there anything that's kind of practical there for you that lets you know where you are in your story i mean like like post-it notes or or research materials strewn around you a timeline somewhere no i've never had anything like that um at all uh i no um i make notes obviously as to things that will happen or things i think will happen in the novel often of course like with many uh, writers it doesn't go according to plan but those i've all got on file on my computer and i also have a hard copy um i'm old enough to prefer having hard copies of things but i've never had i've never had time. the only novel i ever had a sort of time plan for i think was my novel easter because it was a long novel and the first and third part both took place during the same week, Holy Week, doing different church. Well, there were the same church services, but different people. And basically, I, I won't go into it, but somebody might have to exit um, through a sacristy door or through the main church door, or go up to an altar um, in, let's say, the Maundy Thursday service in the first part. Then there was a second part of the novel, which was completely separate. And then the third part, they'd have to come back from that, which somebody else was observing 300 pages later or something. And so that was actually almost like a, a fado farce, you know, where somebody goes out one door and in a hotel to commit adultery um, and comes back in, you know, while somebody else is knocking on the door trying to find her husband or his, he's trying to find her, his wife. So 
that was rather a complicated mechanism. Um, and I did have, uh, I think if I remember rightly, um, very careful planning of that once I'd written the first part anyway. But otherwise, no, I don't have anything of that sort. I always plan my novels. I don't mean on a, on a very um, sort of minute level, but I always know the sort of uh, novels that I have, uh, I write, which are um, quite, um, have a sort of, I think I hope, a, a moral force behind them, have an arc. The story have a, has an arc which um, has a, a, you know, a certain, um, I hope, moral force. Let's put, that's probably the, the best. So I do know almost where a novel ends before it begins. What I don't really know is what's going to happen along the way. But I, I always have an idea um, what I'll be writing the next day uh, because of what I wrote, you know, if you like, the day before. I, I can't remember who it was. It was some very famous writer. It might even have been Tolstoy, but I'm probably imagining it, who never fit, who always left his sentence um, half open, uh, never finished the sentence, the last sentence at night. So the next morning he would, you know, begin with with finishing off that sentence. So he knew where he was from that point of view. Um, I, I do know what I'm going to write. It doesn't, as, I, as I've just said, it may not be what I think I'm going to write, uh, but I have an idea. I wouldn't like to start. I don't think I'd be happy starting every day thinking, oh, my goodness, what are X and Y doing today or where are we or anything like that. Um, I need a bit of a safety net. Um, and um, as regards how much I do, that's really one of those how long is a piece of string questions because it depends to a large extent where I am. Um, when I'm thinking about a, a novel, I mean, I'm thinking about a new novel now, and I might just jot 10 sentences down over the course of a morning. Uh, and not, not sentences, as it were, for the finished book, but you know, ideas of who a character might be, how that might relate. I know what the basic theme of the novel is, how that might re relate to that. Um, when I'm um, writing uh, a sort of first draft and I, I half write by hand and I half do it on the computer, it's, a, it's a, not a, a defined act. When I'm um, doing that, I can uh, write, a, you know, two or 3,000 words during that time most of which will never see the light of day, um, not only in, in the um, finished novel, but in the, any notes I keep, because some of them can be so terribly crude and I would hate anybody to, to see it. Um, and then, but then when I'm writing my final drafts, I mean, I might write a paragraph um, during that day um, because, um, you know, it, 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 I'm trying to, if you like, uh, I, uh, perfect it. Uh, I, I always, I, I know different writers have different images for their processes. And in fact, obviously different writers have very different processes. But I always liken mine to, to sculpting in that the first draft is very, you know, I have a piece of marble and the first draft is very much chipping away to get the, the basic um, structure of, of what I'm writing and, and the basic form. So, you know, if I were, if it were a sculpture of a, of a figure, you know, you'd vaguely see where the head is and where the arms and legs are, but there'd be no 
definition and there'd be no elegance. And gradually I, I chip away until hopefully you end up with Michelangelo's David or something like that. But um, that's probably a vain hope. <laughs> you mentioned uh, writing your first draft, splitting it between the computer and, and, and handwriting. What makes that distinction? How do you know what's with your pen and what's on your keyboard? What are you deciding to do? I, I don't honestly know. I mean, I, I, I wrote my first three novels um, which was quite long after most people had computers, um, by hand. Uh, and I still think there's something between brain and hand that is, well, hand on, 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 and pen that is not the same between brain and fingers and, and keyboard. Uh, and I frequently try, I mean, I keep thinking, come on, Michael, it's the 21st century and all that. And so I try to do, you know, start a first draft on the computer. And after a few lines, I then go, you know, back to my writing pad, which is you know, in, in my bedside table drawer, and take it out and start uh, writing. So um, it, it, I should think actually three quarters, five, six, seven eighths of the first draft are actually by hand. But I, I've thrown the, 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 those then I put it on computer quite quickly. So um, I just think there is something, you know, that we, we, are, we are, I think the phrase is hardwired to, to, to write by hand. Um, and I'm still not, I don't, even when I'm writing, I, I, I write book reviews a, a little, very few now. I've written a lot in my time. Um, and even those which I, I know obviously aren't the, of, of the same degree of, care i mean i'm careful about the other person's writing but i'm not necessarily so careful about my own writing of them i still find myself writing by hand first it's interesting your metaphor of the uh with the comparison to chiseling away a a bit piece of rock and ending up with michelangelo's david you've written uh, what 11 novels now short stories as you mentioned book reviews theater reviews you've been around words for a long time how much better are you at future drafts? So perhaps sculpting away and finding Michelangelo's David perhaps the first time round and not waiting to keep chiseling, not waiting for four or five drafts now. Well, I don't want to go back to the metaphor, but you, the, the odd fingernail is perfect first time round, but not, still not a lot of it is not there. But that's because I tend to write very quickly the first draft. Um, I don't know. I'm afraid of it eluding me. Uh, and so by definition, my, my thoughts run away with me. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I suddenly, you know, I don't just sort of go about, you know, jewels within the dust, but I, there are phrases in those first drafts which which will now end up in the finished novel, but certainly not the whole of it. Um, and they, they can be quite messy. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm always intimidated by anybody who can do things I can't. I mean, not just in writing. I'm intimidated by somebody who can put in a light bulb properly. But um, I remember many years ago, well, 10, 20 years ago, uh, being at a dinner party um, with the writer um, Elizabeth Jane Howard. And she said to me that um, she never, you know, she she never changed a word from her first draft. 
um, somebody across the dinner table um, sort of looked up to the heavens with a sort of sigh that this was actually a total nonsense and she probably changed a huge amount. Um, but I, I remember being enormously impressed. But I also remember I, I went to um, one of those evenings that Christie's, it was either Christie's or Sotheby's do, uh, before they have a big sale. I was invited because it was a sale of literary stuff. Um, and what, some of the item, I think it was just think it was just actually always Oscar Wilde stuff when I think about it, um, and included, I think the last um, uh, pages of, of the manuscripts for some of the plays that were still in private hands. Let's say it was an ideal husband. I don't know. And I've always assumed that Oscar Wilde was somebody for whom epigrams just dropped completely naturally from his lips and, 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 and indeed from his pen to the paper. But I was very gratified to see that there was enormous numbers of scrawlings out and, and things, um, even in a play which is obviously much shorter um, and easier in that sense, and I think in other senses, but it's a different issue. Um, and so... You know, even Oscar Wilde, who who made it all seem all these witticisms and epigrams and things seem so natural. Uh, he um, he he had uh, struggled quite a lot, so I felt um, relieved about that. How happy are you with that? I guess the struggle and the overwriting now, Michael. You said earlier that you sometimes write two, three thousand words that will never see the light of day. Uh, how happy are you? with that time that you're you're spending on something that isn't necessary i guess at the end um i'm quite happy with it because i know it's part of the process um you were kind enough to say you know i've written a lot now um i don't feel that you know i think when i was writing my first novel the celibate which was published in 1993 and i think i started writing it in about 1988 or 89 um, I was like anybody writing his or her first novel. I was very anxious. I was desperate to show that I could do it. I thought I had things that, to say that, that the world needed to hear, all the rest of it. So there was a great deal of urgency. In fact, I cut that. That novel was far, far too long. Um, I mean, I cut it with, with, with the help of an editor, um, I cut it when it was in very final draft stage, so that the, the 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 it was very polished by then, and so the stuff that was cut was actually in terms of you know the quality of the writing was fine, um, but it wasn't necessarily part of the novel, or at least it was you know too much for the novel. Now the stuff that I write, um, I you know either it will be reshaped. Or it will be discarded, and either I mean, in the first draft, that is, and either way, that's fine because I don't, you know, I'm not. I was just thinking the other day that 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 I I'm not going to write quite as urgently as I did um, in the past. I, I want to have a little bit more breathing space. Uh, there are, I, I think, I've still got several novels. I know that I've got several novels that are sort of ideas are half formed in my mind. Um, which I would like to get done, but I don't feel anymore that my life would be wasted if they weren't done. So, um, yeah, whatever it takes um, is part of the process. And I think people 
should feel that. I don't think people should worry if they throw stuff away. Um, I mean, I know there are some writers who write a first draft of a book and then throw it away completely. Um, I mean, a complete first draft of a book and don't, but have, you know, have a form then in their mind and then start again, um, which, you know, some people would think would be perhaps a very wasteful way of doing it. But everybody has his or her own way. And I think that there are no no rules. I mean, once, as I said, I was rather intimidated by Elizabeth Jane Howard. Actually, she intimidated me on several levels, but that's a different issue. Um, but you shouldn't be. I mean, there's no one way of doing it. Uh, we all have our different ways. Some people have novels planned. I mean, Iris Murdoch had her novels planned to the nth degree. And some people have um, novels where they sit down on the day one with an empty um, page and and write, you know, there was a mackerel sky as John looked up or whatever and don't know what John is going to look up and see. I, I'm somewhere between the two. Um, so I think you can, you know, whichever way it works for you. I don't mind the gap. I mean, the no way that, that um, I would ever have been asked, I think, to write two novels a year. Some people think I'm very pr prolific, and I get this sort of, oh, you churn them out, which I find rather offensive. Um, but you just, again, it, it's what does it for you. I, I, I'm not, I don't feel quite so driven to do it now that I did. I suppose it's to do with age. Um, and, you know, you go, you only have to go into Waterstones or Daunt's or any other bookshop and you see that, you know, there's the thousands of novels on the fiction shelves. And so that your own, my only um, concern is to write the best novel I can that will stand up, you know, against those other novels and including, I hope, um, novels I've myself written in the past so that uh, I don't want to write anything that's substandard. I mean, quite, you know, I, I know that quite a few writers have, their inspiration or their facility has slightly tailed off as they reach 60 or go beyond some, of course, you know, Penelope Fitzgerald or somebody just thrive at that age. But so, you know, you want to be very, very careful. I want to be very, very careful about that. Um, but no, I think, I don't know, the, the whole COVID thing has given us all, I think, a slightly different rhythm of life. Um, and I did, and though I'm very glad that we're now resuming some form of, of, of human contact, uh, I I'm um, anxious not just to do what I, you know, did in the past, which was rush around to all the places and, and also, you know, just feel that every day I had to, you know, do my six o'clock routine. Um, I don't mean I'm going to start writing one day a week, but I just want a bit more time for me, if you like. Uh, let me just take you back to how you write very quickly. Uh, you, you seem to be... Uh... I, no, I don't know. In my mind, you're 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 there with your your books all around you, and it's quite a romantic setting. And I wonder if that's the case with what you write with when you when you're when you're writing by hand. Have you got a, a particular pen, a particular notepad that you use when, when you're on the computer? Is there a, a particular font that you like to write with? Um, in both cases, yes, actually. I mean, it sounds very precious and. I remember reading that Muriel Spark, for example, could only write on a very, very particular um, notepad that came from some very 
you know, sort of old-fashioned stationers in Edinburgh. And uh, when that shop was going to close, she bought up, you know, 200 notepads or had them, and had them sent to her house in Italy. Uh, nothing like that. I mean, the notepad I write on is, is a sort of basic uh, Ryman sort of pad, uh, one of the A4 ones, which I don't know, um, I, I, I like. And an A4 pad is often... If it's if my writing is relatively small, that's one page of a of a of a finished book in a way. So it gives you an idea where you are. Um, I have a very lovely um, silver cross pen that was given to me by one of my great aunts when I was much younger, and I like to write with that. I don't know. I love the great aunt, and I find it a sort of slightly sentimental thing. Um, with um, in terms of the fonts, I like Times New Roman. Uh, there's a the, the, the sort of default font now on Word, uh, which is what I, I also use uh, uh, on my um, computer. Um, the default font is, I think I don't know how you pronounce it, Calibri or Calibri? Calibri, uh, yeah, yeah. Calibri, um, thank you. And I, um, I, I don't mind using that when I'm, again, writing a review or something, but I, I have to do I have to use Times New Roman for the actual writing of, of, of a book. And it gets me very cross because certainly for the first few times, and I've actually written quite a lot in it, every time I go back onto the wretched page, Calibri comes up as, you know, the default thing. And that's a, and I have to go right the way through, I don't know, 200 fonts to get to a T so that I can then press Times New Roman in instead. I'm sure that there's a very simple thing to do. I think but, if you just click the drop down and type a T, it will be the first one that comes up, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you may have changed my writing process forever. <laughs> Saved you um, a lot of stress. Um, yes, yeah, certainly that. No, that. <laughs> um, listen, just before we, we touch on the anointed, I'd love to talk about genre very quickly. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to harp on about other authors that I speak to, but many of them are, are genre writers, yeah, thriller, crime, that that kind of thing. And they tend to have one character and stick with them for, for many novels and, and have a big old series. I mean, look at Ian Rankin, for instance. Uh, why, you have not done that and you write literary fiction. Why is that what interests you, do you think? Changing things around uh, from book to book with maybe playing on different themes? Oh, uh, uh, yes. I, I Well, I don't think that many, um, it is literary fiction, uh, writers keep the same characters. I mean, obviously, you know, you have those Romain Fleurs like Anthony Poles. But um, and my friend Amanda Craig um, has characters who recur from novels, but not in the sort of Ian Rankiny way. You might get a minor character in one novel becomes a major character in another. Um I've never, I mean, I think for me that there are so many varied settings, so many varied characters, um, so many varied themes that I'd like to um, explore. I I, I think, you know, I I know that insofar as I'm known, I'm known most for writing about issues of faith um, in, in the broadest possible sense and settings that involve characters from faith traditions and things, um, though they're all very different. And in, in, in just in those terms, I've written in, 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 in Christian and, and Jewish and 
to a lesser extent, Islamic um, traditions. So, but no, I just think there's so much to to write. So many varied characters. I wouldn't want to get um, stuck down in that. Though obviously, um, I, I've no, I'm not a, a thriller reader, so I don't really know Ian Rankin's work. But I know he has a very famous. Um, Detective, whose name I can't now Rebus. remember. Rebus. Rebus, yes. So, I mean, if I had a character like Rebus, um, I, I think obviously it would be um, very interesting and also um, very profitable to keep bringing him back. <laughs> um, but um, no, I, I've not done that yet. I, I can't. Well, the novel that I'm, I'm just about to write, or uh, I won't be. It'll be something completely new too. Uh, it's also the styles different there, Michael. I mean, you, you, the the way you write is not of that of a, you know, a, th- a thriller writer. And maybe you've answered this by saying that's just because that's what you read. How much do you think of the style in which you are writing? Oh, quite a lot. Um, the the I mean, just to you know, it, it's a very different thing if you're. I mean, the Anointed, for example, is set. Um, 3,000 years ago. It's set at the court of King David. And there's, no, you know, I no way that I wanted to, well, we don't, obviously they, were, they, were, <laughs> they, they weren't speaking English, they were speaking Hebrew. Um, but I, there's no way I would want to have a sort of King James Bible version with a lot of privies and troughs and whatever. Um, but I had to have a very pure language because I didn't want any language that was at all anachronistic. Um, I didn't want anything that made you think this is being written in 2000 and whenever it was, 2019 or 2018, 19, I suppose, when I wrote it. Um, But nor did I want you to think, gosh, this writer is deliberately taking us into the dark ages. So it it was, I hope, a very pure, uninflected sort of English. when I wrote my, my biggest novel of Men and Angels, which was set actually in five completely different historical periods, then it was a similar process. But apart from the, the final process, which was per part, which was set in Hollywood in um, 1986 or seven, um, you know, the others, which were set in ancient Babylon and medieval York and um, Renaissance Italy and 19th century Palestine, uh, I had to have a language in each case that was suited to that period. Now, I haven't you know, written those are my period novels, but otherwise, you know, it, it depends. My first novel, The Celibate, was written in the first-person voice, and it was a, a man talking to a therapist. There were also uh, two walks through Jack the Ripper's London and uh, Plague Village in Derbyshire, which was slightly different. But um, and, and, and in that... I mean, my, my thought of that was, you know, there was the joke that people wrote their first novels as a sort of therapy. And I thought, well, I would try and make that literally the case. But then that was very much had to be conversational, um, whereas a novel, I, I, you know, like The Enemy of the Good or something, is, 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 is more formal because it's written in the third person. I don't I, – I, I've – don't now write, can't write books with overarching narrators. I don't think that's how we think and feel today. We don't, I mean, I'd love to be George Eliot um, in every sense, actually, but I'd love to be George Eliot standing on a hillside looking over a Midlands town and being of the all-seeing eye. But I don't think that's true to how we experience life anymore. So when I've written 
in the third person, certainly, I can't recall suddenly, but in earlier books, but certainly in recent books, it's always been the, the point of view, though it's been in the third person, has been the point of view of the character, uh, the protagonist usually, in the, or in several, in some cases, several different people. Um, so yes, it, I, I do think very, very strongly. I mean, the Master Betty novel, which I mentioned, The Young Pretender, um, which I mean, is that is the, that actually is a sustained attempt to write it as an early nineteenth century memoir. Um, and so I, I, I have on my computer the Oxford English Dictionary, and one of the great things about it is that it tells you when words were first used. Uh, and not only when words were first used, but when words were first used in the sense that you wish to use them, uh, because often they were used not in that sense till later. And it's surprising how many uh, words I, in the last draft I've had to cut because um, they came in in the late 19th century or something, and, and the story is being written in, in uh, effectively in 1816. And I don't think that many readers would know that because the 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 the, the, the words you know the vocabulary I've used I was using I mean seemed very authentic to me, and I, I got quite a good historical knowledge, um, but I just felt it would be cheating. It was very important to me that the words were used in a couple of cases. I think that that they actually the first instance in the Oxford English um, Dictionary is say eighteen twenty. And I'm writing in 1816, so I've decided that actually, you know, my character was really the first person ever to use it, um, and the Oxford English Dictionary just didn't pick it up four years later. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We'll be back with Michael Arditi in just a sec. Just popping up uh, to say that if you are enjoying the show, if you've enjoyed any of the shows that we've done recently, I mean any at all, even the little bonus bite-sized bits of inspirations that we give to you early on in the week, if you've learned anything there that has helped the way that you tell your stories, I'd love for you to support us over at Patreon. 
patreon.com forward slash writers routine is one of the best ways that you can support the show. Just a, a couple of dollars a month helps us keep going. It helps us keep bringing you chats with intriguing and award winning and fascinating authors just like this as often as we can. Uh, just a little bit, it really goes a long way, I promise. And for that, you get our eternal, please, our eternal, eternal thanks. You also get some merch, you get uh, bonus episodes, more stuff, and there is a chance for your book to sponsor this show, all by getting involved at Patreon and helping us in any way that you can. I'll say it again, a little goes a stunningly long way, I promise. Just get involved and support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, I said that we were we were motoring through it this episode because it's a beefy one. It's a beefy one with Michael Arditi, all about his new novel, The Anointed, a retelling of the biblical King David from the perspective of his three wives, which is important to reflect on, really. Uh, he's telling the story of three women. He is not one of those. At the moment, many authors, many male authors, are being criticised for the flat, kind of two-dimensional way that they write female characters. How much does Michael really think about that? How authentic is he trying to make these characters, these characters from history, from, you might argue, fictional history? And we talk about that as well, how he puts his own fiction and spin into biblical history. And we pick things up talking about the themes too. Why his fiction tends to explore the idea of faith. Where does that come from? Even in a society now where a lot of people don't believe, uh, I do as a matter of I think that's quite plain, um, in uh, a, a creator. Um, the Through exploring faith, you come to explore how who we are, how we think of ourselves, how we regard our place in the universe, as much for people who don't have faith as for people who do have faith, of course. And also, um, well, in, in, in terms of Britain, in terms of Western Europe, the Judeo-Christian um, ethic um, and tradition has, has permeated everything. The language we use, the law, ideas of democracy, which come much more from that, in fact, I think, than ancient Greece. Um, and, and everything else, um, it, it, it's just who we are. It's, it, it really is in our DNA. Now, you, you, you may say that that was all a you know, historical accident or, or even a historical conspiracy. But in fact, that also says something about you. It says as much about you if you, you don't believe as if you do. Um, and it's not, I mean, I must, you know, the novels are in no sense religieuse. The novels are in, aren't saying this is what you must believe. The novels are exploring the nature of belief, the nature of doubt, the, the way that particularly fundamentalism has, has um, taken over in so many cases from what I think is a, a genuine interaction with ideas of faith uh, and has, of course, caused so much misery. So, I mean, even in the case of the anointed, which, um, you know, is the story of King David. I mean, King David is, is one of the, well, he's the great hero of, of Israel. I mean, you only have to see the star of David on the flag, which obviously wasn't David's own star. Um, but, you know, he, he is one of the, the central myths of, of, of 
Judaism and Christianity. And though in many ways, I'm just really exploring his life and the life of his wives, because it's, as you're perhaps talking in a minute, but it all goes seen through his wives. Um, but it still has a pertinence today that I actually don't think is the case if you are, say, reinterpreting the Greek myths, which um, many write. I mean, people do that all the time. And Madeleine Miller's done it wonderfully in uh, Achilles and Circe. Pat Barker, who's a writer whose um, First World War writings I admired enormously, but I, I really didn't like her her one um, about Achilles and um, Briseis uh, because I thought it was anachronistic and she didn't make any attempt to recreate, if you like, the, the, the ancient world. But in those cases, they are interesting from a literary point of view because figures like Odysseus and Achilles and, and so many others, Agamemnon and Electra, have informed um, much of our, our literature and uh, are you know, given us, in some cases, archetypes, you know, Oedipus, obvious case. But they haven't informed the general culture in the way that um, Christian and, and Judaic myths have. And yet, when you say that, um, when you say you're going writing a book about King David, or you're writing a book set within religious services, as happened in Easter, or you're writing a book um, about the nature of fundamentalism and its uh, terribly deleterious effects as in the enemy of the good, people look at you as if you're doing something that's actually slightly archaic. Um, and, um, you know, it, I, I think that's wrong because it's it, it's still absolutely pertinent to, to who we are and the society we live in. I mean, you've mentioned The Anointed. It's the new novel, as you said. It's a, a retelling of, of King David. And uh, I'm very intrigued as to that as an idea. So, so, Michael, will you just tell us the very first moment that the initial idea for the anointed came into your head? How did it present itself to you? Well, the, the, like, like quite a few of my books, not all of them at all, um, it almost comes from the, came from the one before. The one before was of, of Men and Angels, which explored the cultural and historical aftermath, if you like, of the story of Lot and Sodom, and particularly the, the history of homophobia in these different societies. Um, I, I mentioned before medieval York and Renaissance Florence, but through the artworks, through the medieval mystery plays and um, Botticelli in the Renaissance and things like that. Um, and during that time, the first part of the novel was set in ancient Babylon. And I posited that it was when the Jews were in exile, which is when many people believe the Old Testament took on its sort of final shape. When the Jews were in, were in, in Babylon, they came into contact with this very sexually free society. Um, I mean, ancient Babylon you know, seems to have had, you know, temple prostitutes and things like that. And they were very um, appalled by this and, and wanted to keep themselves apart. And so they invented various myths, but one of them was the myth of, of, of the Sodomites, you know, um, which uh, and, and, and the raping of the angels, God's angels. And, and this then has led to if you like homophobia on the level it has been for the next uh, 2,700 years. So um, 
I, I got, I was, well, I was always interested in the Bible, but I, I, I sort of thought there were a lot of opportunities that, and David is a character that's always interested me. There's more about him than about anybody else in the Old Testament. There are several other novels about him, some very good, a couple very good, and some pretty indifferent. Um, and I, he's also a character of huge contradictions. Um, on one level, he's this sort of shepherd boy who plays music which um, cures King Saul's depressions, and also he's supposed to have written the Psalms, which are this great devotional literature, probably the greatest in world literature. He is the great hero who, as every school child knows, um, slew Goliath with his sling. He he defeated Israel's enemies. He founded Jerusalem, all, all these things. On the other hand, he was a traitor. Uh, he rebelled against um, King Saul, who was the Lord's anointed. He joined for a short time the Philistines, who were the the ancient enemies of the Israelites. He was appalling to women. Um, there's there's a lot of controversy as to his relationship with Bathsheba, who is probably his most famous wife, largely because she had a penchant for bathing nude on her balcony, which meant that painters could paint her. Um, but I, in my case, in my book, it's a rape. And I think that's pretty clear he has her husband killed. He becomes a tyrant. He's in, unable to control his children, one of whom, one of his sons rapes one of his daughters, if you like, a, a brother raping his half-sister, and David does nothing about it. Um, and he has a very unpleasant end. Um, so he's this terribly contradictory figure. And so I had the idea then of seeing him from different points of view, and that, I don't know exactly what came when, but I then decided that I wanted to, to do it through his three most prominent wives. And I realized that I could tell the entire story of David from when he came to King Saul's court first as a, as a sort of teenager, a gilded youth, um, through that through his first wife, um, Michal, who was King Saul's daughter, and who actually really becomes uh, his his nemesis or his nemesis his his enemy during the course of the book and she's also the sister of Jonathan um for whom David wrote you know the love we had was passing that of women uh, uh, and we don't know fully about their relationship and it's not that prominent in the book but she certainly has her ideas about it and then there's the second wife Abigail who is a wealthy widow who is really instrumental in his gaining power first um, amongst her tribe, who are called the Calabites, and then um, when when he becomes king, and then of the, the, the final wife Bathsheba. Um, there are plenty of other wives, by the way. He he was um, he he wasn't um, very abstemious in that direction. Um, Bathsheba, whom, whom, um, who was a young uh, general's wife and who seems to have loved her husband um, and uh, whom he either seduces in some accounts or in my account rapes and takes to the palace and it's her son who becomes King Solomon and there's no question that in the biblical story she plots to gain power for her son 
And these women's story, they're not told separately, they interweave. And through them, you can get the whole of David and also their characters. And what was interesting to me was, A, having written Of Men and Angels, which was primarily um, a novel about men, um, because, not exclusively, but because that's for obvious reasons, if you're talking the story of Lot in Sodom, I wanted to write putting women um, at the center of the book. I hate this current notion of cultural appropriation. You know, I should only write about middle-aged men living in northwest London or something. Um, I, I feel that a, a writer must be allowed to use his or her imagination in any form, and it's for the readers and also obviously for critics <laughs> to say whether or not um, we've succeeded. Well, let me ask you about that quickly, Michael. Sorry, it's there, there is a bit, you mentioned um, the current fascination with, I guess, cultural appropriation, but also um, there is a focus on the way men write women now um and and many criticisms of how it's been done in the past and you're you're telling the story of three separate women and and their lives are intertwining their stories are are, are are all mixing together how much thought did you give to telling these stories in maybe a new and an authentic way as authentic as you can be for a woman who lived 3000 years ago well i mean a lot uh, I mean that was you know the, the, they're all they're very different. I mean, Mikal is a girl of I can't remember I think fourteen when she the, the book begins. Um, Abigail, as I said, is a, is a wealthy widow, um, and Bathsheba is a, is a young wife. Um, and you just have I mean you know it's not really so much as a conscious thing, but I have to say um, the, the book has been very well received. By both critics and readers, and the critics particularly have have um, commented about the you know, power of the women's voices, um, and that is very very gratifying. But I, I don't, you know, you only have to look at you know the, the, the great nineteenth century novels about women, you know, from from Madame Bovary to Anna Karenina, were written by men. Now that might mean because there were far far fewer women writers at the time. Um, and women, of course, I, I mentioned um, Pat Barker earlier. I mean, she's written brilliantly about men in, in, the, in the Regeneration trilogy, in, in, the, in the First World War, uh, and, and so on. I mean, men can write brilliantly about women, and women can write brilliantly about men. Um, it, it, well, they can also write, both can write badly about them, and they can write badly about their own gender as well. It, it, it depends on the, the empathy you display for the characters. Um, and, you know, the, you, you don't want a, a novel written by a man to, uh, about a woman to begin, you know, today as I was having my period, you know, as if to say, look, here I am in, in, in woman's clothing. I mean, you, you've got to, to me, I don't make any distinction, um, perhaps it's because I'm gay, I don't know, but I don't make any distinction between my women friends and my men friends when I'm talking to them. I treat them, I mean, all the same. And I hope I treat my characters all the same. I hope I'm truthful to them and to the world they live in and to the conflicts in which they find themselves. And, you know, that's what The Anointed is about. Um, and it, it, it has been, you know, said very kindly that it brings those Old Testament women in, into them, makes them accessible for a, a modern generation. Uh, lastly, I just want to touch on 
your I guess your work as a as a as a, as a uh, book reviewer. I couldn't think of the word then. <laughs> you, you know, you're right. You're reading so many books, and you're having to critique them and, and give your opinion on them. What has that taught you about the way that your novels should read? Um, I'm not sure. It's well, not consciously. I, I, I now re- review far, far less than I did. Um, I, I reviewed a lot of novels, a lot of novels between about. 1992, when I stopped being a theatre critic for the Evening Standard, and 2013, when I became a theatre critic for the Sunday Express, which I, I left um, during COVID. In fact, well, they cut their review section, and it was time for me to leave anyway. And so, for those 20 years, I was reviewing a huge number of books. Uh, I then, when I became a theatre critic again. I uh, didn't want to have two lots of you know critical stuff going on, and now I'm only going to do the odd thing, particularly something I like. I don't want to review books I don't like. When I was doing it in, in that twenty year period, I was reviewing so much that inevitably I, I reviewed things I don't didn't like. But now I I, I don't. I only want to re- review things I like. Partly, of course, there's there's less space, and it seems to me an awful waste to review review something you you don't like. Um, unless it's by somebody terribly well known, and therefore it won't you know, harm them in that sense. And if it's terribly inauthentic, uh, that hasn't been the case so far. Um, and I don't know. It just told me that everybody has a different voice. Everybody, uh, there, there is, you know, uh, the story must find its own structure. The story must find its own way of being told, if you like. But, you know, there are no rules. I mean, that's what's so, you know, you you can have a novel like, you know, the Nicholson Baker novels, famous people, one was called, I think, Lunch Hour or Lunchtime or something, where the whole novel, it was a relatively short novel, but it was a complete novel was set during a lunch break. Um, Or you can have a novel like, um, I've suddenly forgotten the name of the author, um, Carol something, <laughs> the Stone uh, Diaries, which is set over a period of 100 years. Um, you know, or you, so you can have novels, I mean, narrated by animals. You can have novels written, narrated by whoever you want. You can, sometimes the novels can be narrated by groups now, which is something I think I'd find very dif- difficult. But, you know, I don't think everything should be original for the sake of original uh, originality, but for the sake of being true to the story you're telling. Um, and, you know, in the case of The Anointed, as I was writing, it became very clear to me that, that you know, it was the women's experience of, of, of the man that was important. I wasn't actually just describing the man through three narrators just in order to get the variety. It was actually their particular experience and their point of view. Um, it also meant I could avoid huge numbers of descriptions of battles which um, permeate the books of Samuel, which it comes from, um, and which I wasn't very interested in and I didn't think readers would be very interested in. So um, the, the, no, the experience is just, I mean, I think all writers should read. Um, I, I don't teach creative writing or anything like that. I, I'm not a great believer in creative writing courses, but I am a believer in, in creative reading and uh, uh, friends of mine who do teach these courses always say how appalled they are by their students who want to, um, you know, obviously want to write and be published and all that, but 
don't read. I mean, they should be reading two or three novels a week. Um, obviously, the classics, but most of us read the, a lot of those at school and things like that at university. But then what's coming out now? I mean, I just learn all the time different ways of seeing, different ways of writing. Um, not not to copy, because that would be, well, it's not just that I'd be afraid of plagiarism, but because that wouldn't be the experience of the novel that I'm trying to write. But it does just show me all the time that there are so many different ways of telling so many different stories. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Michael Arditi. Uh, I shared a session with him at the London Book Fair, kind of a month after we recorded this, a little while ago, uh, and he was an absolute treat. I mean, a little a little bit of a faff with, with technology, I've got to be honest, but a, a really, really lovely guy who tells fantastic stories and articulates the way that he writes so brilliantly. I really appreciate him coming on the show. You can get a copy of his book at writersroutine.com and in the episode notes wherever you're listening. Now, uh, the Carol something, by the way, that he mentioned of the Stone Diaries is uh, Carol Shields. Can't really let that kind of thing lie. Carol Shields of the Stone Diaries. Uh, Next week, we're chatting to the author Claire McGowan, who has just written her first true crime story. That's next week on the show. In the meantime, you can support us on Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at WritersPod. You can get in touch at writersroutine.com and make sure you follow us wherever you get your shows from as well. If that place is Apple, leave us a review. Takes barely a second and it goes an extraordinarily long way to helping us out. Uh, And I will see you next week with Claire McGowan on the show. Until then, bye. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.